You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm William Ball, now continuing our course on religious freedom in the United States. Today I want to explore religious liberty and freedom of conscience and intellect. And here I simply drop a note when I speak of freedom of conscience to say that freedom of conscience does not prevail over the necessity of truth. And we'll be treating that point as we come to our last session. But obviously the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech, press, assembly, and petition are valuable protections in addition to the protection given by the religion clause of the First Amendment. Then also are the Constitution's protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, the fair trial requirements, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments barring governmental deprivations of life, liberty, and property without due process of law, Certainly, too, the providing to all of equal protection of the laws may be valuable in protecting against, say, religious discrimination. In our first session, we took up the case of George Reynolds, the Utah gentleman with two wives, his Mormon religion, and his imprisonment. And we noted the Supreme Court's holding that government may not restrain us in our beliefs but it may restrain our religiously motivated actions. Our courts have had to face many cases in which this action-belief dichotomy has posed whopping problems. Take the case of Mrs. Guy W. Ballard. Mrs. Ballard was convicted of using the mails to defraud. The federal government said that she did this by promoting what she called the I Am movement through use of the mails. In these mailings, she had said that her husband was also Jesus, was also a 17th century Frenchman, and she and her husband had been selected as divine messengers with all sorts of powers to heal all sorts of ailments, including incurable ailments, the exercising of which powers, said she, had indeed cured hundreds of people. So she was brought to trial. Were these beliefs true? Were they such that they could be held? The lower court held that the truth of Mrs. Ballard's representations of her religious beliefs should have been submitted to the jury. The case came to the Supreme Court, which disagreed. The truth or falsity of a person's belief, said the Supreme Court, is not for juries or courts to decide. Hear now the words of Justice William O. Douglas as he spoke for the court. Freedom of religious belief embraces the right to maintain theories of life and death and of the hereafter, which are rank heresy to followers of orthodox faiths. Heresy trials are foreign to our Constitution. Many believe what they cannot prove. They may not be put to the proof of their religious doctrines or beliefs. But what if Mrs. Ballard knew that what she was saying was false? Apparently, with this in mind, the court let the indictment stand. But Justice Robert Jackson would have dismissed the indictment. 
While he said, I can see in their teachings nothing but humbug, he believed that courts are on dangerous ground even when they try to weigh the sincerity of a professed religious belief. The past three decades have seen outbreaks of high controversy, some of it reaching the Supreme Court, respecting non-conventional groups which have creeds or a core of beliefs which pertain to the nature of man, his destiny, a code of conduct, a reliance upon the supernatural, but do not embrace belief in the God of the Bible. Last year, one such group, the Church of Scientology, found itself in controversy in Germany where the government declared it, in effect, a fraudulent religion. And in the past decade, we have read much about what the media call cults, the Jim Jones people, the Waco Branch Davidians, and the Heaven's Gate San Diego Travelers, all of whom had beliefs of great intensity. Intensity, but are these religion? The question is important because the religion clause of the First Amendment protects only religion. The amendment's other clauses may surely be invoked abundantly to protect speech, press, and assembly, but how broadly do we define religion? In 1961, the Supreme Court departed from American tradition since the founding of the nation, saying that secular humanism is a religion within the meaning of the First Amendment. One Roy Torcaso had been appointed to the office of notary public in Maryland and was refused a commission by the state because he refused to declare his belief in God. The Supreme Court called the state's action a violation of the Constitution's requirement protecting the free exercise of religion. The court went on to discuss that point. Here's what it said. Among religions in this country that do not teach what generally would be considered a belief in the existence of God are Buddhism, Taoism, ethical culture, secular humanism, and others. Our belief-action dichotomy pushes us further as we briefly note the draft cases and the situations of conscientious objection to military service. Notice now the continuing broadening by the Supreme Court of the concept of religion. Historically, the court had held the term to mean one's views of his relation to his creator and to the obligations they impose of reverence for his being and character and of obedience to his will. That was language from a case in 1890 and had been employed by the court again in 1931. On the eve of World War II, the Selective Service Act had provided exemption from military service of any person who by reason of religious training and belief is conscientiously opposed to participation in war in any form. The Vietnam War saw conscientious objectors before the courts, some of whom, like one Daniel Andrew Seeger, could not state that they believed in a supreme being. The Supreme Court in the United States versus Seeger said Seeger was exempt because he held, in the words of the court, a sincere and meaningful belief which occupies in the life of its possessor a place parallel to that filled by the God of those admittedly qualifying for the exemption. 
The court went on to quote Protestant theologian Paul Tillich in his book, The Shaking of the Foundations. Tillich said, and if the word God has not much meaning for you, translate it and speak of the depths of your life, of the source of your being or of your ultimate concern, of what you take seriously without any reservation. Perhaps in order to do so, you must forget everything traditional that you have learned about God. I want to point out two major consequences of this position of the Supreme Court. One, the obvious point, is the almost infinite broadening of the idea of religion. Theism is now but one of myriad professions of belief. Inevitably, it suffers diminishment in the national consciousness, especially when all the varieties of notions falling within the term secular humanism are considered. But this new definition of religion also gives rise to another point. You have noticed that the term religion is used but once in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. If in the terms of free exercise, religion means secular humanism, it must mean the same thing in terms of establishment. The meaning is clearly, therefore, that government may not establish secular humanism. Ponder that now as you go back to your notes from session two. There we saw that secularists have pushed very hard in pursuit of the Everson dictum that not a penny of tax funds shall be used to support, for example, religious education. We will see in session four that the use of public power to impose secular humanist requirements on religious schools and other institutions will be a matter of high significance. So we see the draft laws as an example of the designing of public policy to accommodate religious liberty. In many federal and state statutes, we likewise see such accommodation. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, dealing with discrimination in employment, gives specific exemptions where the employment is on the basis of religion. Federal law and many state laws protect religious hospitals and nurses conscientiously opposed to abortion from being required to participate in abortion. In few settings are freedom of conscience and religion more important than in the education of the young. Yet here we have witnessed and witnessed today a constant tension between the claims of God and the claims of Caesar. We will now take a look at this tension under two headings, education in the public schools and education in non-public religious schools. We looked earlier in this series at the Protestant-oriented public school of the 19th century, with that orientation continuing well into our own century. But by the 1930s, complaints were being voiced by some Protestant leaders over the decline of religious affirmance in the public schools. At that time, as Dr. Alexander Michael John, though long deemed fighting liberal among American college presidents wrote, we have torn our teaching loose from its roots. We have broken its connection with the religious beliefs out of which it has grown. The typical Protestant has continued to accept the Bible as, in some sense, the guide of his own living. But in effect, he has wished to exclude the Bible from the teaching of his children. The teacher in the modern school is commissioned to teach many things, but he is not commissioned 
he is rather forbidden to teach that faith upon which his community depends. Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler of Columbia University was among those who realized the seriousness of the situation because of the vital importance of religion in any complete education. In his report for 1934, he said, the school child is entitled to receive that particular form of religious instruction and training which his parents and natural guardians hold dear. This cannot be done if the program of the tax-supported schools is arranged on the theory that religion is to be excluded from the educational process or treated merely incidentally as an element in home life. In the 1940s in Champaign, Illinois, a group made up of interested Jews, Catholics, and Protestants devised a plan to remedy the problem. Under the plan, the local Board of Education permitted weekly classes in religious instruction to take place on public school premises in grades four through nine. No child was required to participate. No expense to the school district was involved the instructors being the employees of this interreligious council. The parent initiated the child's participation through signing a card requesting the instruction. The instructors were subject to approval by the superintendent of schools, this apparently to ensure that persons promising harm to children or disruption of the regimen of the school could be kept out. The evidence established that this provision had never been employed to deny access to any religion's representative. It was further found by the trial court that the religious education of children, of which there had been five years' experience by the time of trial, had not been promoted of sectarian differences, but had in effect fostered tolerance rather than intolerance. As against the acceptance and support of the program by a majority of the parents, one parent, Mrs. Vashti McCullum, who described herself as a rationalist, sought to end the program. In the Supreme Court, she prevailed. The case is known as Illinois ex-relator McCullum versus the Board of Education. The basis for the court's decision becomes interesting to re-examine today. When the cumulative effect of decades of parental frustration over denial of religious liberty for children in public schools has apparently reached an explosive pitch. The court's opinion by Justice Black was erected upon the sands of Justice Black's Everson dictum. His imaginative and historically inaccurate picture of the meaning of the Establishment Clause. The court's point was that the use made of tax-supported property for religious instruction and the close cooperation between the school authorities and the religious council violated the principle of absolute church-state separation. The court ignored all facts contained in the trial record which showed how salutary the program was in accommodating the liberties of students and parents, or how the program offended no one except the pressure groups which had convoyed Mrs. McCullum to her victory. While the lady's interest in obliterating the program appeared to be less that of a parent than of a rationalist, the interests of all the other parents did not intrude upon the court's thinking. Not once in the opinion of the court appears a single line devoted to their equities. 
Justice Felix Frankfurter penned a long concurrence, likewise expressing no concern for them, but going on to say how children who did not participate in the program would be harmed. Evidence of these dreadful consequences, however, was nowhere to be found in the record. No parent or child victimized by the program had given evidence at the trial of any trauma the program caused. The harm was indeed of a more incorporeal sort, harm to a principle, i.e. to a narrow philosophic prejudice insistent that its values be imposed as superior to any parental rights. Thus the court destroyed a socially valuable community agreement which over the years had been painstakingly developed. The important value of the program lay in its encouraging religious pluralism, a value later said in court opinions to be important. The greater damage, however, was the damage to the proper interests of religious parents. Furthermore, the court had now set the stage for the total establishment of secularism in the public schools, which would be accomplished 15 years later. Angle versus Vitale was an action by the parents of public school pupils to bar use in their schools of a 22-word prayer composed by a governmental body, the New York Board of Regents, a little prayer which reads, Almighty God, we express upon our dependence upon thee and beg thy help for our teachers, our parents, and our friends, words to that effect. The prayer was to be recited aloud. No pupil was to be compelled to participate if his parents objected. School authorities were forbidden to comment upon non-participation of any student, students being permitted to remain silent or to be excused entirely from the exercise. The parents who sued included members of the Jewish faith, of the Society for Ethical Culture, of the Unitarian Church, and one non-believer. They claimed that the prayer practice violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. After the case was underway, other parents intervened claiming that to ban the practice violated rights of theirs protected by the free exercise clause of the same amendment. The Supreme Court held the program to be void as an establishment of religion. And what's remarkable about its opinion is its reliance upon irrelevant history and its complete failure even to mention the asserted parental rights of the intervening parents. The historical props by which the court, in lengthy footnotes, sought to support its opinion ranged from the Inquisition through the depredations upon religion of Mary Tudor and Elizabeth I, the persecutions of John Bunyan and Roger Williams, and the Virginia assessments against which Madison had invaded. The court summarized its key point. The historical fact that governmentally established religions and religious persecution go hand in hand. In other words, the 22-word prayer, in spite of the procedural safeguards which had been attached to its use, set the stage for religious persecution in New York. The fact that there existed no credible connection, whatever, between the prayer program and the dreadful historical episodes with which the footnotes were threaded seemed to be of no importance. And this scholarly-looking hyperbole sufficed to render any discussion of the parental rights of the parents unnecessary. Thus was ignored a wise earlier admonition of the New York Court of Appeals, which had upheld the prayer program. It had quoted a statement of a Mr. Spencer, 
the state superintendent of schools in 1839, who said, both parties have rights. The one to bring up their children in the practice of publicly thanking the creator for his protection and invoking his blessing, the other of declining on behalf of their children the religious services of any person in whose creed they may not concur, or for other reasons not satisfactory to themselves. The Regent's Prayer case caused a national storm of criticism, characterized by Paul Freund of Harvard Law School as a mere intemperate outburst, but in fact expressing a widespread and profound anxiety over the ultimate significance of the decision. The Supreme Court, with but one dissent, that of Justice Stewart, had banned the prayer because it was religious. The court's words were, the state of New York has adopted a practice wholly inconsistent with the Establishment Clause. There can, of course, be no doubt that New York's program of daily invocation of God's blessings, as prescribed in the Regent's Prayer, is a religious activity. The country read the matter right. Religious activity, any religious activity, was now purged from the schools which most school children attend. There followed next term a third in the trilogy of cases relating to religion in the public schools, and hence vitally affecting parental rights in education. The Supreme Court's decision in that case has been propagandized as a historic balancing of interests in religious liberty as against the public interest in the non-establishment of religion in the schools. But it's nothing of the sort. Rather, it was an elaborate attempt of the court to defuse the intense controversy which followed its Angle Regent's Prayer decision. The new case in 1963 was called Abington Town School District versus Shemp. We call it the Shemp case, and it was actually a pair of cases a case about the Lord's Prayer from Maryland, and Bible reading case from Pennsylvania. The plaintiffs in the Pennsylvania case were Unitarian parents and their children. Those in the Maryland case were Madeline Murray and her son both professed atheists. No parents favoring the practices were parties in these litigations. The well-known fact that the court struck down the practices as establishing religion is of less significance than the prescription which the court penned on the nature of religion and establishing the thing it disavowed establishing, a religion of secularism in the public schools. Since the compulsory attendance laws would drive all children into the public schools, except for those whose parents desired and could afford private education for them, this establishment of secularism was of enormous consequence to parental rights. The court insisted that it was not establishing a religion of secularism in the public schools, but with this significant qualifier. It said in the sense of affirmatively opposing or showing hostility to religion. But what if religion were simply ignored? Surely by ignoring a thing, especially when we speak of leaving it out of the curriculum of the school-aged children, we do teach, to say the least, its unimportance. The court did not face up to that question. It substituted its own religious judgment that the omission would be sufficiently made up for by installing courses in comparative religion, in the history of religion, or study of the Bible for its literary or historic qualities. Religion itself could be studied if presented 
as the court said, objectively as part of a secular program of education. This prescription has been totally unacceptable to those many believers who do not conceive religion as a secular matter, who consider the Bible as the word of God, and who abhor comparative religion as destructive of belief. If the parent wanted the real thing for his children, religion, not as a secular program but as religion, that could not be had where the child, at the most sensitive stage of being, would spend most of his learning years, most of his days, most of his hours each day. No, said the court, the place for that was in, quotes, the home, the church, and the unviolable citadel of the child's mind and heart, quotes. The home and thus home and church were thus relegated to weak collateral positions on the periphery of the educational process. Justice Stewart, the sole dissenter in Shemp, clearly exposed the falsity of the court's elaborate and deceptive rationale. He said, with all its surface persuasiveness, however, this argument seriously misconceives the basic constitutional justification for permitting the exercises at issue in these cases. For a compulsory state educational system so structures a child's life that if religious exercises are held to be an impermissible activity in schools, religion is placed at an artificial and state-created disadvantage. Viewed in this light, permission of such exercises for those who want them is necessary if the schools are truly to be neutral in the matter of religion. And a refusal to permit religious exercises thus is seen not as the realization of state neutrality, but rather as the establishment of a religion of secularism, or at the least as government support of the beliefs of those who think that religious exercises should be conducted only in private. The new religion, officially installed, would now become the dominant factor in the formation of the new generation and the almost inevitable determinant of the national future. The consequences to religious liberty and parental rights would be of great significance. This secularization then proceeds rapidly in the decision of the court in 1980, voiding the posting of Ten Commandments in schools in Kentucky. In 1985, the voiding of an Alabama law which authorized a minute of silence for prayer. In 1992, the forbidding of a rabbi to offer a non-sectarian invocation at a public high school graduation. Now, aware of the moral vacuum created by the dereligionizing decisions of the Supreme Court, new forces now rushed in. And over the next three decades, answers to the questions of how life shall be lived were widely installed in the public schools. Philosophic sources for the new values were to be found in the prescriptions of, for example, Professor Ulick, who in 1965 said he saw the public school teacher as having a mission to, and I quote, educate free minds who, on the one hand, appreciate the depths of man's religious tradition, but to whom, on the other hand, the old denominational and dualistic conflicts appeared secondary, if not inhibitive, to a unifying world outlook. 
The meaning was that the teacher's task is to teach children, regardless of their religious background, that Lutheranism, Judaism, Catholicism, etc., A, have profound traditions, but B, their disagreements, that is to say, doctrinal differences. These being secondary, these will inhibit the child's having a unifying world outlook. Not to worry, that's going to be supplied them. Among these have been sex courses, often under another label such as health, hygiene, etc., and instruction in Marxian or other materialist social views, again under a variety of headings such as social studies, problems of democracy, population problems, etc. In addition, such programs now placed in the public schools as values clarification, magic circle, quest, and a variety of new age projects all express secularism and many involve invasions of familial privacy. Here let me speak of Ohio's outcome-based education program imposed on private school pupils in 1996 pursuant to intense lobbying by the State Board of Education. The Ohio device is called proficiency testing. The state tests all the children in reading, writing, mathematics, science, and citizenship. There is no grading. Instead, children are measured by judging whether they have achieved certain outcomes deemed desirable by the state. The tests are scored not by the child's teacher, but by unseen and unreachable governmental reviewers. They determine whether the child's learning outcome permits graduation. Such outcomes emphasize gender diversity. Others reflect a materialist view of society. Religion's unimportance is stressed by its total absence. Some outcomes give a disproportionate picture of non-traditional family structure. Questions ask that students share their feelings on sensitive personal and family matters. The state is free to share individual students' responses with other parties, including data banks. Programs of this sort, now widespread in the nation and helping form its culture, are of course flagrant violations of all that the Supreme Court had been saying about the requirements of the Establishment Clause that religion be kept out of the public schools. Unhappily, secular humanist programs have not been attacked in our courts on constitutional grounds. This is more than simply an irony. The ultra-separationist view of the Establishment Clause had, as we have seen, no historical roots and was without any sensible foundation. It takes dead aim at religious liberty. And that is exactly what is the evil which is found in the imposing of secular humanist programs on children in our public schools. Enforced conformity to the religion of the state, whether theistic or secularist, is a violation of the free exercise clause. Precisely this was said by the court in a case decided at the height of the nation's participation in World War II. Jehovah's Witnesses in West Virginia had refused to have their children salute the flag. To them, the flag was a graven image. They cited Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. State officials threatened to send the children to reformatories for criminally inclined juveniles and to criminally prosecute the parents for causing delinquency. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the parents, noting that the flag salute mandate required the individual to communicate by sign his acceptance of the political ideas it thus bespeaks. The court concluded, 
to force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. If there are any circumstances which permit an exception, they may not be forced to confess by word or act their faith on something in which they disbelieve. How applicable, you may remark, to the plight of many public school parents right now. The major alternative for those parents is the religious school. We have already spoken of that in terms of economics and the ultra-separationist no-aid view. But we will speak of it now in terms of state efforts to suppress liberties of religious education and parental choice. And we'll focus on that as part of a larger picture of religious freedom. I'm going to begin with the ominous words of the English Catholic scholar Christopher Dawson, writing in 1934. The new state, he said, will be universal and omnicompetent. It will mold the mind and guide the life of its citizens from the cradle to the grave. It will not tolerate any interference with its educational functions by any sectarian organization, even though the latter is based on religious convictions. And this is the more serious, since the introduction of psychology into education has made the schoolmaster a spiritual guide as well as trainer of the mind. In fact, it seems as though the school of the future must increasingly usurp the functions that the church exercised in the past, and that the teaching profession will take the place of the clergy as the spiritual power of the future. We in America have experienced the threat of which Dawson spoke. In 1922, at a general election in the state of Oregon, an initiative was adopted making it a crime for parents to enroll their children in any but public schools. The state threatened to arrest and prosecute all parents who would send their children to private schools. This act was inspired by the Imperial Council AAO Nobles Mystic Shrine, the Grand Lodge of Oregon, and the Supreme Council ANS right for the southern jurisdiction of the United States. The Nobles Mystic had circulated a pamphlet supporting the public school monopoly, warning against people forming groups and saying that the permanency of this nation rests in the education of its youth in the public schools. Our children, it said, must not under any pretext, be it based upon money, creed, or social status, be divided into antagonistic groups there to absorb the narrow views of life as they are taught. Befezzed and marching in oriental garb, these Americanist devotees of sacred signs and secret ceremonies nevertheless bad the voters, mix those with prejudices in the public school melting pot for a few years while their minds are plastic and finally bring out the finished product, a true American. Three years later, the Supreme Court would deal with a challenge to that statute. Meanwhile, in a Nebraska case, upholding the freedom of a Lutheran school to teach German children, the court reflected on the power of the state in reference to those plastic minds. It quoted Plato's ideal commonwealth's prescription that children are to be common and no parent is to know his own child nor any child his parent. The proper officers will take the offspring 
into the pen or fold. The court noted that in order to submerge the individual and develop ideal citizens, Sparta assembled the males at seven into barracks and entrusted their subsequent education and training to official guardians. The court vehemently rejected Plato's prescription. While a state may do much, it said, to improve the quality of its citizens, the desire of the legislature to foster homogeneous people with American ideals would not justify the violation of fundamental rights. Building upon that background, in 1925, the court held Oregon's monopoly statute unconstitutional. The Society of the Sisters of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary, along with a secular military academy, had sued to embar imposition of the statute on private school parents. The Supreme Court, in its opinion, attacked the idea of a state educational monopoly, upheld the freedom of private, including religious schools, and in a memorable phrase, stressed parental rights in education. The child, the court said, is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with the high duty, to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. In that context, the state would be permitted a narrow and limited regulatory role over schools in the name of the common good. This case is known as Pierce versus the Society of Sisters. But nothing in the Pierce decision suggested the state in the role of primary educator or as superior educator, the standard setter for all educational endeavors. The holding in Pierce flatly contradicted blank check public regulatory power over private education. Pierce was thus wholly consistent with the teachings of Catholics, Evangelicals, and Orthodox Jews on education and parental rights and in defense of religious schools. The Catholic Church in its Declaration on Christian Education of the Second Vatican Council stressed this very strongly, stating also that the state must keep in mind the principle of subsidiarity so that no kind of school monopoly arises. But in the decades following Pierce, the rights which it defined have come under attack. Precisely the situation envisioned by the court and scathingly rejected by it in Pierce has come into existence with enormous power claimed by the state over the education of the young. The public school system, massively supported by taxation, has achieved near monopoly. In 1968, a case arose in Wisconsin which was a striking example of the power of that monopoly. There the law required that all parents send their children to two years of high school. Amish parents could not comply. Their religion called for the living of a simple life, close to the soil, and very much separated as a community from worldliness. Amish believe in education, but the education they pursue is quite different from that provided in public school. It is, for one thing, God-centered, bringing children into ancient traditions of prayer and morality. For another, it provides literacy. Indeed, it's bilingual, English and German education. Amish kids are trained to be the best natural farmers in the world, and that also is an aspect of their religious convictions. They maintain grade schools, but believe that formal education beyond that is not only unnecessary to their way of life, but courts prideful sophistication.
The refusal of Amish parents in Greene County, Wisconsin, to enroll their children in high school prompted the state to charge them criminally. The Amish defended themselves in court, believing that the state's schooling requirement violated their religious freedom. Their attorney relied on a prior decision of the Supreme Court, known as Sherbert versus Werner. Adele Sherbert, a Seventh-day Adventist, had become unemployed but was denied unemployment compensation because she'd been offered a job but refused it because it required her to work on Saturdays, which Seventh-day Adventists regard as Sabbath. Adele sued. She said that to make her unemployment compensation depend on her violating her religious beliefs was to deny her the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the Constitution. The Supreme Court agreed with her and in doing so laid down three highly important points. First, it said a religious claim must be shown by people protesting government action on religious grounds. Here, of course, Adele was well able to prove that in her faith, Saturday is the Sabbath and one may not work on the Sabbath. But government, the court said, cannot restrict anyone's religious freedom unless A, it proves that there is some supreme societal interest or compelling state interest in its doing so. B, that it must show that it has no less restrictive means available to it to realize that interest. The matter came to trial. The Amish testified as to their beliefs in few words but with clarity. There was no doubt then as to the reality of the Amish religious claim. So now the burden of proof shifted to the Wisconsin Department of Education, to the government. Could it prove that there was a compelling state interest in forcing Amish children into high school? It utterly failed to. The nation's top expert on educational effects, Dr. Donald Erickson of the University of Chicago, familiar with Amish education, testified emphatically that their education results in the fact that the vast majority of their younger people are able to move in adult roles and perform them with competency. The county sheriff was called to the stand and testified he had never known of any instances of law-breaking by Amish, young or old. The county director of social services testified that no Amish were on welfare, but were entirely independent and self-sustaining. The Amish lost in the trial court, but won two years later in the U.S. Supreme Court, which held that Wisconsin had failed in the two-part test on free exercise. It stoutly reaffirmed that test now in the much more significant setting of education of the young. Applying that test, the court held that the state had not proven that there was a compelling state interest in forcing high school on Amish children, further that the existence of Amish education meant that the state's goal of protecting children was already achieved by less restricted means than state schooling. The case is known as Wisconsin versus Yoder, and the superb decision of the Supreme Court was in 1972. By the vindication of the Amish in 1972, the future of religious liberty in America had seemed better assured than ever before. The Yoder decision dealing with the critical area of religious liberty and education reached far beyond the question of schooling. The Yoder test protected religion generally. As we have seen, it said that government must cross a very high hurdle in attempting to place limitations on religious activity, prove that not merely a public interest justifies its action, but some supreme 
societal interest or compelling state interest. The decision was hailed by major constitutional scholars as the high watermark of our religious liberty jurisprudence. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.